I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Chicano Squad. The Chicano Squad hits the ground running, learning how to investigate, interrogate, and solve homicides on the job. In just three months, they solved 40 homicides, blowing away everyone's expectations. But just as they begin to hit their stride, they are confronted by a new, more sophisticated adversary. The cartels had come to Houston. 1984, Houston. Jaime Escalante had only been a Houston police officer for about two years, but he'd been busy. He was young and hungry. Maybe a little too hungry at times, if you ask the supervisors at HPD. I think I've been called an activist many times because I stand up and I don't give a crap what happens to me. It is what it is. Just one year earlier, at age 24, as a rookie patrol officer, he was chasing a suspect, speeding through town, when he got T-boned by another vehicle and came within a heartbeat of losing his life. His aorta had been torn, and Jaime spent days in a coma. And I remember saying, God, please help me survive this incident. And then I closed my eyes. He did survive, though. Jaime thrived on the job. Jaime was the kind of officer who wasn't afraid of much and hated paperwork and red tape. And it's fair to say he racked up a few internal complaints at HPD for failing to follow the rules. I would think like, damn, all this damn paperwork. I wish, I wish it was easier so I could arrest the other guy next to him, you know. And I've been with HPD for 39 years. I'm the number one for the most complaints. I also got, I think, like 47 accommodations, so... I want to retire at an even number on complaints. But there was something about Jaime that made everyone trust him and tell him anything he wanted to know. That was his secret weapon. As a young and hungry patrol officer with two years on the job, Jaime had just been invited onto one of HPD's first tactical units. That's a specialized group of officers that respond to high-risk incidents. He was eager to prove himself, so... He worked overtime to create relationships with as many informants as he could. A cab driver told an officer on the TAC unit about a huge shipment of cocaine that was supposedly headed for the port of Houston. Now, Jaime dreamed of working narcotics and doing undercover work someday. If this tip panned out, it might mean an invite to that unit. He tried to tell narcotics detectives. They're like, really, dude? And what do you work out of? Patrol? Okay, we're going to look into it. They brushed him off. Nobody believed his tip. Because, you know, narcotics, 80% of the time we get information. Zero. But Jaime followed his intuition. He and the TAC unit came up with a plan and headed to stake out the docks. And there they waited. 
Man, I remember it was just been hot, nasty, humid, good old Houston weather. And I remember eating a lot of Fritos for some reason. Days passed. It was a huge investment in time and resources for HPD. It was a huge risk. But Jaime Escalante, he wasn't afraid of taking risks. I'm Crispel Alonso. I'm a comedian and activist. And this is a piece of history I can almost guarantee you've never heard before. The story of a young band of Latino police officers thrust into an impossible, unwinnable situation by a police department with their back against the wall. With little training and even fewer resources, they were assigned to solve the city's toughest crimes. From Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Chicano Squad. In the early 1980s, the Chicano Squad had hit their stride. What started out as a 90-day experiment and a special assignment had turned into much more. In a city with an exploding Latino population and a police department that still had very few Spanish-speaking detectives, the Chicano Squad had become a crucial bridge. But dividing the Latino community from the police department was more than just a language barrier. The department was still trying to work through racism that had become deeply entrenched, and Latino victims were still often being disregarded. Right from the start, what the Chicano Squad officers like Cecil Mosqueda lacked in training, they made up for with street sense and something even simpler. They were listening to people who hadn't been heard before. The thirst to talk to someone, to communicate, I could see it, we could feel it. The people would just open their hearts towards us because we were able to communicate. And it couldn't have come at a more crucial time for Houston. In 1980, one out of every 11 Houstonians had been the victim of a major crime. A staggering statistic. By 1981, Houston earned the nickname the murder capital of the United States. In a case that made national headlines just before the squad was created, in one weekend alone, there were 17 murders in Houston's Latino neighborhoods. That's right. 17 homicides in one weekend. Houston's surging crime wave was all over the local news. We know that crime rate is going up. We know that HPD is understaffed. The biggest story in Houston this summer has been crime. Overall, the department was severely understaffed and plagued with accusations of officer brutality. In 1982, the Department of Justice investigated more civil rights complaints involving Houston's police department than in any other city except New Orleans. Unfortunately, HPD's reputation and the tension it created in the city were not about to be helped by what happened next. Houston's economy was intertwined with the oil rig count. If there were a lot of rigs, things were going well. 
It was estimated that one rig translated into 45 blue-collar jobs in Houston. In 1982, the count peaked at 4,530 rigs drilling for oil in the U.S. And then... Who took the boom out of Boomtown? The bottom dropped out of the oil market, and thousands of jobs were lost. Now the oil slump of 1982 has halted growth and created millions of square feet of silent, empty space at a cost of millions of dollars. These clips, which made national news on NBC, showcase a Houston economy in freefall. Houston had seemingly gone from boomtown to quiet overnight. And as Houston's economy tumbled, it exacerbated the rising crime. This problem now fell into the hands of Houston's newly elected mayor. The previous November, Houston had elected Kathy Whitmire, a Democrat and the city's controller. She had run against a sheriff who had formerly been chief of police and won. The voters seemed to like her objections to crony politics and her defense of the rights of women, minorities, and LGBT Houstonians. The young widow who looked like the Dustin Hoffman character in the movie Tootsie, but who was tougher than Rambo, and claimed City Hall away from the old guard and made the old guard pay homage at her court. That's Houston news station KPRC. As you can tell from the way she's described, Whitmire's ascension in City Hall sent shockwaves through Houston's good old boy network. As city controller, Whitmire had seen the ticking up crime and watched as the city made national headlines for all the wrong reasons. She was determined to professionalize the city's operations and dedicated to keeping out sweetheart deals. And one of her first tasks as mayor was to uphold a campaign promise. Cleaning up the Houston Police Department. Right away, she faced a wave of backlash. Whitmire knew she needed to find a new police chief. She rejected the tradition of hiring from within the ranks. A headhunter helped her conduct a national search, which led to Atlanta, Georgia. There, the city's public safety commissioner was Lee P. Brown. Brown was a rising criminologist and respected leader. Brown had been extremely successful at building trust in Atlanta while the city was living through its own headline-grabbing crisis. Over a terrorizing two-year period from 1979 to 1981, a serial killer had murdered two dozen children. When Houston recruited Lee P. Brown, the suspected killer had just been arrested and the murders had stopped. Brown had also gotten attention for sternly reforming Atlanta's police department. And, importantly, he was a member of a disenfranchised minority community. He was African-American. They approached me and called me and asked me would I be interested. I told them no. During his time in the ATL, Lee P. Brown had managed to diversify the police department and increase the number of African-American officers on it, work he wanted to continue. Plus... He'd read awful things about the Houston Police Department. There were national magazines that covered Houston, some of the negative things that were being done, throwing a Hispanic in the bayou and the person drowned. The African-American community was in an uproar about their treatment, as was the Hispanic community. So 
the national headline was out of control. Many thought that the department didn't even consider itself as part of the city of Houston, but an entity unto itself to do what it wanted to do. That's the reputation it had throughout the country. Still, the idea lingered. And there was something else, something deeper, that appealed to Brown. Sure, he had a legacy to uphold in Atlanta. But could he make an even bigger impact? No major city in America had ever had an African-American to be its police chief. And I'd always complained about that phenomenon. Houston was the fourth largest city in the U.S. It had three times as many residents at that time as Atlanta. This was an opportunity that wouldn't just be changing his life. It could change American history. Brown reversed course and accepted Mayor Whitmire's invitation to come to Texas and hear her pitch. In a secret meeting in a hotel conference room outside DFW Airport, Whitmire petitioned him to help her change HPD. Here I was offered the opportunity to, to take over the police chief of the fourth largest in America. And by principle, I, I couldn't refuse. And so I took the job. Brown instantly faced an uphill battle. I was not welcome with open arms when I got here. Who's this outsider coming in? The fact that Brown's skin color was problematic inside a police department said a lot about the problems within it. I mean, you really can't protect and serve if you can't see people as, well, people. There was plenty of anger directed at Kathy Whitmire as well for doing the exact thing that had drawn Brown in, giving the department's reins to someone who wasn't white. Listen to how Brown's appointment as police chief was taken in Houston in this local news clip. She brought to town a police chief who was a black man. For a few days, it seemed as if the world would slide off its axis. Prejudice, no matter how ugly, did not die easily. I probably had more than one death threat. That was not uncommon. We even had the Ku Klux Klan came in march against me. When Brown took stock of what he saw in HPD, he saw a department that needed major changes across the board. You had very few African-American and Hispanic police officers. You had still had segregated units. So all those things would be taken into consideration. How can you make the Houston Police Department reflect the community of Houston? The big changes Brown needed to make weren't going to happen without cutting some people loose. The, the chore was to weed out those who were doing the wrong thing so I ended up firing a lot of people my first few years on the job. The department was understaffed and had a woeful ratio of officers to residents compared to the national average. Brown would have to be careful with his resources. Already, Chief Brown had started to formulate his model for what would become neighborhood-oriented policing, a type of policing that brings officers close to the people they are tasked with keeping safe. I advocate community policing where the police are a part of and not apart from the community. Here's Brown explaining the concept in an interview with the Harvard Kennedy School's Institute of Politics. The police get to know the people. I believe very strongly if they had instituted that concept of policing, the police officers on the streets would know the kids on the streets. And thus, no problems could emerge as a result of that. 
Lee P. Brown had his eye on a number of changes, but there was at least one thing his predecessor started that he actually wanted to keep intact, and that was the Chicano squad. Where you had people who understood the culture working in that neighborhood. If you know the culture, speak the language, know the people, you can do a much better job. Made a lot of sense to me. The Chicano squad fit exactly into Brown's philosophy on policing. The chief hit the airwaves to report his success and start winning the hearts and minds of Houstonians. Here he is in an interview on KUHT at the time. So as we look at things, particularly some of the new programs we've implemented, we see results. We end the year, for example, of 1983 with a 17% reduction in our homicide rate. That's significant. Those are lives that are saved. By 1984, almost two years into his tenure, the data showed that Chief Brown's reforms and the work the Chicano squad was doing seemed to be getting results. The Chicano squad officers were from the areas that they were policing. A smile and a few words in Spanish, and residents understood that Cecil and the others were taking the time to hear them out. The Chicano squad's filing system that started with a few Polaroids of homicide suspects had now grown to contain 1,170 cases. There were hundreds of cases that started as total mysteries. Unidentified bodies tossed in ditches or found in bar rooms, whodunits that the Chicano squad solved, humanizing the victims that were someone's mother, daughter, husband, or uncle. And by 1986, Seven years after the Ragtag Squad had been formed, they hit a huge milestone. The Chicano Squad had cleared a whopping 80% of the homicide cases assigned to them. To put that in perspective, today, the average clearance rate for homicides in the U.S. is around 62%. And that's in a world with DNA and cell phone towers. It was an astonishing feat. The Chicano squad had taken a pile of cold cases and whodunits and turned it into a clearance rate any department in the country would envy. But they'd need more than Polaroids for what was coming next. The crimes in Houston were taking on a new, more sinister appearance. At one homicide in Harris County, The word was that the killers bit one of his victim's tongues. Then, they had jumped from one side of the body to the other, in a ritual meant to keep evil spirits from haunting the killers. In the apartments where some homicide suspects were arrested, officers found altars or shrines featuring trinkets, celebrating unfamiliar deities. They were dead animals candles, ritualistic symbols, all associated with a rash of brutal homicides. The Chicano squad officers had no idea what it all meant. They were about to learn that a far more insidious and well-financed enemy had arrived in Houston. More after the break. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, But this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. 
organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there is no way that, that Israel should be able to participate in Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. This week on The Gray Area, Professor Diana Posulka and I tackle one of life's biggest questions. Are we alone in the universe? What would it take for you to step off the agnostic ledge and say, yeah, aliens are real? Is it a spacecraft landing on the White House lawn? Well, something that was anomalous in 1952 did fly over the White House. And that's one of those cases that is still weird. <laughs> That's This Week on the Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. The drug problem in Houston and the crime that goes with it uh, is something that is totally unusual. It's totally new to people. Uh, people are so scared of it, and it has affected so many people. It is at epidemic proportion in Houston. Uh, young people growing up with the allure of the drug dealers. Is this, this is crack cocaine seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. It's as innocent looking as candy, but it's turning our cities into battle zones and it's murdering our children. Let there be no mistake, this stuff is poison. In the 80s, most, well, I would say most of the homicides were drug related. I mean, we had Colombians killing one another right and left. The Chicano squad was about to face a new adversary, the cartels. And Jaime Escalante, he's the brash young patrol officer I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the cop who had survived more than one brush with death and more than one internal complaint against him, had found himself at ground zero for it. He wasn't exactly fighting off anyone else for the job. Nobody wanted to really work the drug-related cases because they were a headache and you had to risk a lot of stuff and have a lot of courage and be brave. And every time they'd say, oh, it's a cartel and they might do something to you. But, you know, and you can't fear stuff like that. When, when I would hear somebody like trying to do something to me, it would piss me off, not scare me. Jaime is in his 60s now. His thick black hair and mustache have faded into gray. His pursed lips are always on the brink of cracking a joke and bursting into a smile, despite the serious expression that's often on his face. It's the product of decades of being exposed to the worst of humanity. Few officers have seen as much as he has. Jaime Escalante was born and raised in Del Rio, a town four miles from the Rio Grande on the U.S.-Mexico border. His family was religious and taught him to love his Mexican culture and the Spanish language. We lived in the border, Mexicans, diehard Mexicans. I don't consider myself a Chicano, because my mom used to get mad when you hear the word Chicano. Because, hey, the border crossed us. We didn't cross the border. This was Mexico at one time. 
Initially, like so many people in Texas during the oil boom, Jaime toyed with the idea of working in the oil fields. He already had a part-time job in high school. I used to work at construction for the gas company. We used to come to Houston and uh, work for the gas line. And the owner of the company would hire me and my brother every year. Even during spring break, most of the crew, you know, there were Mexicans from Mexico. So, I mean, I, I could have done that for the rest of my life and gotten a decent salary. But his family wanted him to finish his education. So after high school, he'd gone to a Catholic college in Austin in the late 1970s. One day on campus, HPD recruiters had visited, and they encouraged Jaime to enter the academy. And the recruiter was, man, you're bilingual, dude, you can work anywhere. You can go work narcotics. My head just going, what? He goes, yeah, you can work undercover, and man, there's, we need guys like you. And so I'm like, where do I sign up? But not everyone in Jaime's life was excited. His mother, for one, was disappointed. Well, my mother, she didn't want me to be a police officer because the police officers, in, like in Mexico, they're all corrupt and, you know, they're on the take and bribes. And, and she kind of disowned me there for a while. But, uh, you know, moms. Jaime's reviews from his training officers were perfect. After six months of probation, Jaime Escalante was partnered with a man who knew the city extremely well. The partner told Jaime there was a new group of black men who stood on the street corners in northeast Houston all day selling drugs. The two were curious and decided to investigate together. They drove to the area and approached the guys. What's your name? And he says the name in Spanish. And this guy's a black guy. I'm thinking, like, wow. So I go, hey, de donde eres? He goes, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. And he goes, yeah, I'm from Puerto Rico. It wasn't their skin tone. It was their dialect. They spoke Spanish, but with an accent that Jaime had never heard before. I found out later on that they say Puerto Rico so they won't get deported. But it turned out he was a Colombian male. Jaime clocked the new transplants. I started hitting the corners and found out there were Colombian nationals. They were running like a business on the street corners. You, you drive down there and, and people would like rush to the car. I was like, damn, you know, everybody was selling cocaine. Coca, cabello, yello, talco, polvo blanco. It had dozens of street names in Spanish and one big payoff. In Houston, cocaine was about to become king. Jaime paid close attention. Early on, he spotted patterns that indicated criminal activity. It didn't take long for Jaime's lieutenant to recognize his talents and the rising crime in Houston's Fifth Ward, a predominantly black neighborhood. Captain Contreras got authorization to do a pilot program, the first attack unit where there was going to be some undercover officers and target high-crime areas. According to Jaime, he was the only Latino officer on his TAC unit. He was inching closer to the narcotics division, which he desperately wanted to join. His beat responsibilities were changing to address realities in Houston, but the conditions causing them had been in the works for years. More than 2,000 miles south of Houston... There was turmoil in Colombia. Several different factors played a role in the unrest. 
Underneath it all was a significant wealth gap between the country's haves and have-nots. That had allowed a Marxist guerrilla movement to gather traction and throw Colombia even further into social disarray. Meanwhile, a cash crop that had taken off in Peru and Bolivia was taking root. Coca plants grew well in Colombia, and in the late 1980s, the country became one of the biggest illicit growers of coca and cultivators of cocaine. As cocaine production took off in Colombia, those who grew it decided to group together. Wealthy businessmen stepped up to operate syndicates that controlled the sale and distribution of the drug. The cartels were born. These cartels were notoriously violent. They engaged in bombings, kidnappings, grisly murders, and high-profile assassinations. And if law enforcement had anything to say about it, the cartels had an answer. Sicarios, or cartel hitmen, were well-paid to kill anyone who might be getting in their way, and that included Colombian police officers. As the cartels battled each other and the Colombian government, the cocaine made its way to America, where interest in the drug was peaking. The cocaine that comes into this country is 98% pure. This is David Lemoyne, a retired FBI agent who spent most of his career in the 80s and 90s working in narcotics. It's, it's cocaine hydrochloride, that's the kilo bricks that you see. And in that form, it's a salt, it's water soluble. So when you snort it into your nose, it, it dissolves slowly into the mucous membranes and produces a milder but longer lasting high. And when cocaine was in its heyday in the late 70s, early 80s, that was when Miami was really big. A kilogram of cocaine was an expensive piece of cargo. It was produced in the jungle for about $1,000, then transported across the U.S. border in near-pure form. And that was the Medellin cartel that was getting things started in this country. But at that time, it was mostly upper-middle-class white people who were snorting cocaine. By 1985, the price of a kilo had risen to $45,000 in some states. But working in narcotics for the FBI as the Colombian cartels arrived in America put David at the tip of the spear, working on some of the highest-profile cases in the country. Whether it was being in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time is in the eye of the beholder. What we were supposed to be doing was targeting major cartels. We wouldn't even work a cocaine group unless they were moving a couple of hundred kilos a month. Miami was a convenient coastal city long known for harboring criminals. And in the public's imagination, Miami was ground zero for the cocaine wars. You still got the money? Yeah. And I got the yayo. You got the yayo? Yeah, right. Looks like we got a Colombian standoff. I put 100,000 to win on Miami. But here's the thing. As the drug wars in the U.S. kicked into high gear in the early 80s, Miami was suddenly taking major heat from the DEA. These were the days of the actual Miami Vice, not to be confused with the pastel color-wearing cops from the 80s cop show. The drug syndicates tried everything to move their products into the hands of America's addicted. 
suitcases, submarines, secret compartments, private jets, you name it. David Lemoyne recalled that sometimes crew members would have to toss their drugs into the sea to avoid getting caught. I had a guy who was a diver, an experienced uh, diver, and they would hire him uh, to go and get it and, and swim it back to shore. They'd have it hidden on the ship and throw it overboard and he would swim in and get it out. But there was one major problem with Miami. No matter how you got the cocaine in, there was only one way out. Up Highway 95. And so they'd patrol the hell out of that and, and do vehicle stops. And if you were in Miami and you wanted to send some cocaine to Chicago or to the West Coast, it was a long, long way. Around the Gulf of Mexico from Miami, though, was Houston. Smack dab on the coast and not far from the hundreds of miles of undeveloped borderlands marking the line between the U.S. and Mexico. We're the largest port in the country in foreign trade. Major cities are anchored with ports. Well, it provides access to global markets. The Houston Ship Channel is a vital national asset. It was also home to the Houston Ship Channel, which funneled ships to and from the city's massive port in the Gulf of Mexico. And it had two airports with dozens of international and domestic daily flights. Houston is in the middle of the country, and you can be just about anywhere in the United States in 24 hours. Demand was raging, particularly after drug dealers learned they could repackage the pure, concentrated cocaine into rocks, sold in smaller quantities than powder cocaine, which soon became readily available on inner-city drug markets. They take this, this regular cocaine powder and they heat it in baking soda and water and, and boil it out, and it converts it back to cocaine base. And in that form, it's no longer water-soluble, but it'll burn. And so they smoke it, and it just slams it into your system when you smoke it. So the method of ingestion is what makes it so powerful, but it's only about a 20-minute high, and then you got to be smoking up again. But it's highly addictive. By the mid-1980s, the rivaling Colombian cartels had found a new stomping ground. When this crack cocaine came out, it, it made it affordable to the lower-income people, and it, it just the demand just exploded. And that's when Houston really began getting big. When the oil and gas industries collapsed in 1982, the area's white population basically stopped growing. For the next few years, Houston's economy struggled to recover. But many immigrants continue to be drawn to its inexpensive apartments and new jobs in a diversifying economy. El Salvador was crippled with civil war, poverty, crime, and violence. There were waves of turmoil in Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua, too. And thousands of migrants ended up seeking refuge in Houston. Among these new immigrants were also Colombians. There were thousands of Colombians in the Houston area at the time and the vast majority of them were professionals. But there were enough Colombian immigrants fighting for control of a new drug market to give all Colombians a bad rap. Okay, so I have to say, this kind of stereotyping is all too familiar to me as a Mexican-American. 
It used to be surprising to me when other Americans would generalize my community as bad people. Um, my family wasn't. My friends weren't. But vilifying an entire community just seems to be more convenient for some. So Houston had a vulnerable population, easily accessible lines of transportation, and a booming immigrant community. It was a highly desirable location for the cartels to set up shop. The drug trade was lucrative, and with that much money on the line, the cartels were willing to do almost anything to protect it. Everything exploded in Houston. I mean, everything was out of control. To me, it was like upsetting, like, dude, you can't come down here to my country and destroy all these people and families or be so brazen about dealing dope and walking down the corner with your gold hanging out and your brand new Camaro. As a young patrol officer, Jaime witnessed the growing power of the cartels firsthand before they were making headlines. They'll steal from you. If you go out there and try to buy some dope, they'll take your money. You know, they'll sell you a, a fake dope. I mean, all kinds of crap happens. And <laughs> Unlike American drug dealers, the Colombian cartels were not afraid of law enforcement whatsoever. The Colombians were more into uh, shootings and stuff like that, or retaliation. Where somebody missed dope or stole their money, they'll go and do a drive-by, and, and they didn't care. As they came to Texas, the cartels brought their violence and power struggles with them. The old fights died hard in Houston's busy streets. Federal, state, and local monies flooded Houston to fund specialized operating units known as tactical or TAC units that promised to stop the drug-related violence. One of the first units that HPD funded happened to be the TAC unit Jaime Escalante was invited to join. Already, he'd proven to be useful in gathering information and being observant. He and the other officers used their patrolling experience and community connections to start relationships with informants. No one was better at this than Jaime, who would eventually procure dozens of confidential informants who were so loyal that they wouldn't talk to any other officer and who Jaime used to get hundreds of criminal confessions. Because I just bonded with him. You know, I wouldn't force him to give me any of the information, but I'd go, hey, if you change your mind, dude, here's my phone number. Just call me. Something about Jaime seemed to make people trust him. Now, his TAC unit had landed a tip from a cab driver about a ship heading toward the port of Houston loaded with cocaine. Narcotics, 80% of the time we get information Zero. That's why there's always a lot of doubt when you go, oh, there's a thousand kilos. I'm like, yeah, right. Because, I mean, if you're at the bottom of the, of the food chain, you're not going to know anything about where it's coming from or, you know, the ties or who's, who's bringing it in. So this case was a gamble that could make or break the reputation of this brand new TAC unit. So we set up surveillance. Apparently this has been happening for a long time. That ship had been bringing in cocaine left and right to different ports. The ship, called Ciudad de Cucuta, was well known to law enforcement. Partly owned by the Colombian and Ecuadorian governments, the vessel was named after a city in Colombia and was part of the Gran Colombiana fleet, a merchant fleet for the two countries and Venezuela. Jaime and the others crossed their fingers that the tip was true and were given the green light to work with U.S. customs agents on the case. 
the men camped out at the Port of Houston docks, a grimy place in the best of days, and the steamy days of June were far from the best of days. Rats the size of cats crawled over the officers, who kept their eyes trained through the foggy lens binoculars on the ship channel. Jaime was cautiously optimistic, but the unit mentally prepared for all different kinds of scenarios. After three days, the dock they were watching roared to life with activity. Jaime and the others watched from a distance as the ship docked and the crew started to unload it. U.S. Customs, assisting with the investigation, helped the unit navigate to the smugglers. They knew the port real well. So when they were unloaded the cocaine in the early morning hours, we made the arrest. They just never thought anybody would take them down. In the darkness before dawn, armed with machine guns, dogs, and riot gear, they ambushed the vessel and wrestled everyone on board to the ground, then handcuffed them. Amazingly, the load wasn't as well guarded as the unit had expected, and the ship's crew seemed to be unaware that they were hauling drugs, so they were cooperative. Because they were all Spanish speakers, Jaime had the pleasure of interrogating them. Other officers set to work searching the large ship for the drugs. But that was a much harder task than it seemed. Customs was taking off rivets and I mean that it, it was impossible. You could hide cocaine anywhere in there. The unit had brought in a canine, but that was tricky also. It was peak summertime in Houston, and the dog could only search inside the vessel for 15-minute intervals without overheating. Jaime's interrogation proved to be the most fruitful. So I'm interviewing this guy, and then he, he goes, okay, I know where there's 90 kilos. That confession was easy, like, dude... Why are you confessing? Let me work on it, please. Don't tell me yet. The crewman led Jaime down to the engine room and to a tank of dark-colored oil. There, he pulled out a metal container with 90 kilograms of pristine white cocaine inside. In all, the HPD unit, with Customs' help, recovered at least 235 pounds of cocaine that night a haul worth anywhere from $7.8 to $10.6 million on the street. Back then, it was the biggest seizure in southern United States. The unit was treated like heroes in the press. Then, Jaime says, came a chief of police commendation. High praise for patrol officers who were relatively new to the force. But, as Jaime remembers it, the commendation went to everyone except him, the only non-white officer involved. Isn't that interesting? The unit had given him a taste of undercover work, and Jaime Escalante wanted more. There were openings in narcotics, and his supervisors encouraged him to apply. You'll be a shoe-in, they said. But something else was on Jaime's mind. He had a lot of contacts and informants in the Colombian community. And in addition to hearing about drugs, he also heard about the murders. So many murders. Drug dealers killing each other and getting away with it. He called up the lieutenant of homicide. I told him, lieutenant, the Colombians are, you know, 
very violent group out here. At that moment, there were at least four different murders that informants had told him about that were related to narcotics dealers, and Jaime knew who the killers were. Much to his surprise, the lieutenant completely understood and even shared Jaime's panic. He goes, yeah, I see that, and I think we're going to have big issues with the Colombians here the next uh, couple of years. It's going to explode, and it's going to be out of control. If Jaime knew who committed those murders, the lieutenant said, then he should get to work and join the Chicano squad. And he goes, okay, I'm going to put you on special assignment. I was like, what? I don't really want to go up there. Because, I mean, I, I still enjoyed patrol. And he worried an assignment to homicide might mean more time behind a desk. Of course, that wasn't the way the Chicano squad did things. The more he thought about it, he came around to the idea. He loved challenges and knew more than anyone else about the Colombian cartels in Houston. He accepted the special assignment. He was given six weeks to solve four murders. Some of the guys are like, oh yeah, why don't you just say 10? See, the, the most difficult cases to solve are, are drug-related cases. They're transient, there's no ties to the community, they, they make up names, and the trails die, you know, and you find a body. And then when somebody claims a body, they go, you're the wife? And then she goes, well, they gave me $300 to claim the body and send it to Colombia. But I'm just a friend of a friend of a friend. So what's his real name? Oh, I don't know. Dead end trails. The Chicano squad's success had been tied to building relationships and trust in the neighborhood. Then Chief Lee P. Brown had come into the fold and applied a powerful label to what they were doing, neighborhood-oriented policing. Jaime Escalante was instinctively cut from the same cloth. Now, as the cartels moved into Houston, bringing a new, more sophisticated, and violent brand of crime with them, the gains the Chicano squad had made were being put to the test. Jaime was about to become the Chicano Squad's most important new member. Next on Chicano Squad. The Chicano Squad finds itself squarely in the middle of a drug war marked by ritualistic voodoo homicides. When a fellow officer is gunned down by vicious cartel assassins, the city of Houston is swept up in a deadly cat-and-mouse game. Jaime and the Chicano squad must track down the killers before they kill again. Chicano Squad is a production of Frequency Machine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Our producers are Eva Ruth Moravec and Dominique Ferrari. Associate producers are Melanie Rodriguez and Cynthia Bitubiza. Our show was written by Eva Ruth Moravec and edited by Nishat Kurwa and Stacey Book. Engineering and sound design come from Brandon McFarland. Our theme music was composed for the series by Brownout. Backchecking by Charlotte Silver. And we'd like to take this moment to remember David Lemoyne. He was the former FBI agent and narcotics expert you heard from in this episode who spent a large part of his career working with Jaime Escalante. David passed away shortly after sitting with us for an interview from COVID-19. 
we were grateful he took the time to share his story and his knowledge with us. Chicano Squad is executive produced by Nishat Kurwa for Vox Media and Stacey Book, Dominique Ferrari, and Avi Glijansky for Frequency Machine. I'm Cristela Alonso. If you like this episode and if you think this story is important, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell everyone. Find out more at FrequencyMachine.com slash Chicano Squad. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. I'll see you in episode six.